Welcome to the Trails Around the World podcast. Each episode inspires you with a new idea for a long-distance trail or an adventure, someplace interesting in the world that you can discover. We tell you why you want to go and tell you how to make the dream a reality. Whispers, welcome to the Trails Around the World podcast. and Thank you for joining me today. And we're here to talk about the, it's pronounced Cahas Trail. Cohas. Cohas. Okay. And that's in New Hampshire. I have to say this, this trail is, is 170 miles, right? About, yeah, it's still changing and editing, but about 170. Right. And I'm glad to be doing something on a trail of that length because it's something that, that everyone can do in on an annual vacation or on, if you, if you live in the Northeast U S then you could do it on weekends, section hike it. And I will, we can talk more about access. It would depend on that, but it's also a good way of preparing for a longer through hike. If one were planning on doing something bigger, like the Arizona trail or something, one could do this as preparation for that. Uh, but it's, it's, I'm sure satisfying in and of itself. So let's start with an introduction. What's your name, your background, adventure resume? Yeah. Well, hi. Um, I'm James Whispers, I guess. As I started out just wandering the woods in the mid-80s, you know, my folks live in rural Maine with multiple line, miles between roads, and, you know, most land isn't posted. So just wandering back there and, you know, doing, there's air quotes here, trail work, you know, just to, to for different routes. And, you know, then, you know, I, I joined Weeblos and Boy Scouts, and there's a bunch of, you know, short hike camping there. Around the same time, started hunting with family and just spending a lot of time sitting in those backwoods, you know, staying still. And in middle school, folks enrolled me in a program called the Environmental Science Program that was, you know, hiking around and doing ecology things, but a few special trips culminating in a three-day backpacking trip on the presidential range in the Whites. And that had me hooked. The second I got my driver's license, I started bringing people up and, you know, became, you know, active in the high school hiking club. And, you know, right after college, left to try and sobo the AT from Baxter and made it halfway to Harper's Ferry. Uh, went back in 06 and finished it. But, yeah, most of, most of what I do is the, you know, two-night, about two-day thing. You know, I've done the New Hampshire 4,000-footers and all those, but, and a bunch of these. You know, the, the Coas Trail is the longest I've done uh, besides the Appalachian Trail, but I've done, you know, the Grafton Loop and other little weird things that don't, you know, just facing together trails and a whole bunch of trail magic and different sorts of trail magic my whole life, but much more actively recently, uh, especially with the Coas Trail Association. Great. What is it about hiking that makes you love doing it? Oh, so so many things, but so much of it is just being present and out there and uh, having direction of your own time. Um, you know, I think the ultimate of that is the long hike where, you know, if you decide to just stop and camp there, you can just stop and camp there. If you want to go another 10 miles, you can go another 10 miles. And a large part of it, though, is just finding all these little nooks and crannies. You know, there's places I've been to, you know, over 50 times and still discovering new little outlooks and swimming holes and mini waterfalls and, and the such. And. Yep. So regarding the Kohas Trail, uh, 
in one to three sentences, how would you describe why we would want to experience this trail? What makes it special? Yeah, well, for starters, just the very New Hampshire experience, many different types. Also, it's it's wild, fresh trail. It, it uses less popular routes in, in popular areas, but also personally, the swimming in the berries, both seasonally dependent. Sounds great. <laughs> I think you heard my last episode where the berries turned into a, a major aspect of the Pacific Northwest Trail. Every single day I had blueberries, and depending on elevation, every day I had either raspberries or mountain cranberries, and there are a bunch of others uh, thrown in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> So what was the, well, let, let's start a little bigger for people who are not so familiar sure, with the Northeast yeah. West. What is New Hampshire in relation to other parts? Because you were saying that it's very New Hampshire. And of course, in that northern tier of New England, you've got Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. And then you also have New York and Massachusetts nearby. What makes New Hampshire different from the other states? Oh, well, uh, Many answers to that. In this context, yeah. maybe the most important thing is that it's it's really got the the biggest conglomeration of high peaks and wildernesses and and natural lands all slapped together. Um, right. You know, in Vermont, it's a bit more linear. Maine as well, it's a bit more patchwork. But the White Mountains and the lands around it really are this concentration of of the wilderness. Yeah. Um, it does tend to be tougher hiking, uh, like the rest of northern New England, you know, glaciated and rocky. Right. Uh, so where does the Cohas Trail fit into that? Actually, I, maybe to give an overview, I it's it's not specifically split up this way, but I like to think of it split up into thirds. The lower third is the White Mountain National Forest. And so that's much rockier, much more wild. You can, you know, free camp as long as you camp a certain distance from roads and trails and established sites and, and not camp above tree line, side of two feet of snow. Um, it's also where you're going to see most of the people. In certain sections, there'll be lots of hikers, although Coloss Trail stays away from that mostly. The middle section is Nastream State Forest and Dixville Notch, which is also has some of the, the more open, amazing hiking that people flock to but it's further north, and so a lot fewer people go to that, and it's a lot more wild. The Coloss Trail also provides the only legal places to spend the night anywhere That's north of the National Forest, and that kind of changes the character. Yes. Um, uh, the northern section is the Connecticut Lake section, and that's much more, you know, you have OHRV traffic in, in you know, Nashville State Forest and Dixville Notch, but the northern section is much more OHRV travel, uh, a lot of RVers and snowmobilers and a lot of seasonal camping and things like that. Uh, it's a lot more of, you know, the low mountains and going along the Connecticut River and the Connecticut lakes. Mm -hmm. So does it go all the way to the Canadian border? It does. You actually follow the Canadian border for just a short bit before popping right. a few points of a mile south to hit the fourth Connecticut lake. Right. Uh, just the official terminus. Um, okay. But you park at the border crossing and... Uh, I didn't see the border guards, but, but they've been very friendly to other folks. Good. Okay. So, yeah, and, and we didn't touch on the fact that the actual location of the trail is, of course, starting in the White Mountains, which are in, in the middle of New Hampshire or a little bit north of that, and headed north to the Canadian border, right? Yeah. I, maybe to give more specifically, it goes across the whole of Coas County from its southern tip to the Canadian okay. border. 
So it's named after the county. I didn't know. A lot realize. of things are named after Coas, yeah. Okay. Uh, so the terrain, it, it's actually at the southern end, uh, it's going to have the bigger mountains. And then it, it gets more easygoing, so to speak, as you go north, right? Yeah, the further north you go, the less the terrain becomes the problem and the more the logistics become the problem. Right. It's less populated, more wilderness, fewer people. Yeah, uh, very very few businesses, very little cell reception, pretty spread out. Um, more, more remote than most people think of the northeast United States as having uh, in terms Definitely. of this area. Yeah. Yeah, the, the population of, of most of New England, of most of northern, or all of northern New England is, is very centered in the southern part of the state, south of the mountains. Right. So how did this, how did this trail compare to other places that you've adventured before? You've been up and down the north, the, the eastern seaboard. Um, how did this compare to the Appalachian Trail, for instance, or uh, different parts of it? Yeah, it was. It was very familiar to me, but very, very different from the Appalachian Trail. And it actually does cross the Appalachian Trail, I want to say, about 20 miles from the southern terminus. They, right. As the Appalachian Trail is going over the presidentials, the Coas Trail cuts across. Right. Compared to the Appalachian Trail, it's, I mean, if anything, it's, it's closer to the Continental Divide Trail in many respects from the Appalachian Trail. Uh, nowhere near that remote, but, you know, it's it's you know, much more of a route finding experience, even in the White Mountain National Forest, it goes through areas that, that keep getting, you know, hit by big storms and keep having washouts and are, are trickier to get through. That does mean, however, though, you're going through these popular areas, but you're, you're not seeing very many people. For the last few days of my southbound hike through the Whites, I saw three or four groups and only two or three overnighters. So you did this alone, right? Yeah, I did do it alone. That was that was actually an important thing to me where I wanted to see that I could still do it. The co-off trail was, it's basically the break-in period for a, an arbitrarily long hike. And so if you can do the break-in period, you can likely do it all. Right. Well, that's an interesting way, interesting way of looking at it, yeah. Um, important for people considering it or for considering a longer trail and... and uh, on forums and such, many of us say, you know, well, you should have backpacked something before you set off on a long six-month hike. And uh, many people ignore that advice. But uh, this is a good example of something where if you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm taking your point. If you can do this, then you can do a longer one. Yeah, right. And that's, it's hard to really judge what you can do when you, you hike with somebody else. I actually I started the Appalachian Trail tethered right. to my college roommate, and I mean tethered in the way of one tent, one stove, right. meals already pre-prepared for two, and and wow. that was great, but it was also a big mistake. I didn't see any groups that didn't split up for a little bit, but right. yeah, definitely did it alone. Um, when did you hike it? When did you undertake the trail? Yeah, it was just last year, so I I technically started started August nineteenth. And, uh -huh. and technically finished September 7th. Right. Um, and I should say that that's much longer than most people would take. I, I had a few things going on, one being, you know, I'd had a minor surgery I, I was still technically recovering from and had some supplies uh, and was out of shape as a result. Uh, yeah. Another was I really wanted to not just through hike it, but thorough hike it and do as much of the side trails and such as I could. 
So I, I took 20 days. Most people would take a week and a half, two weeks. Right. Um, also, as far as training for the long trail, I did something that apparently nobody does. I now know, and I, I actually took a real zero day uh, in uh-huh. Stark, New Hampshire. You know, with with Nancy at at the Stark Inn. Right. So the uh, the fastest hikers would take probably a week on this, whereas most people might take two to three weeks, right? And it took you about two and a half, something like that. Yeah, just under three, yeah, 20 days. Yeah, okay. I guess I should say just because just it, it made it especially fun, I extended it in the sense that two days before I started, I went to a co-op trail work day, spent the next day leaving all my mail, you know, drop boxes, and then started the day after. It, it, it made it a whole different thing to be able to go over bog bridges that I just helped place a few days before. Yeah. And that sort of investment uh, adds a lot to something like this, certainly. Did you have time constraints at the time? I assume you were on, on leave from work or something like that. Does that? Yeah, I, I, luckily, I luckily didn't for the nature of my work. And because, you know, during my real surgery recovery, I had a lot of time where I wasn't even allowed to go to the woods right. down my street. Um, so, no, I didn't. Okay. And what are considerations that would affect a person's timing for doing this trail? Weather, time of year, and you were saying logistics. Yeah. So, honestly, the logistics are the biggest thing. Like I said, north of the Whites, the only legal places to stay are, you know, in the backcountry or with the Coas Trail, you know, sites and shelters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no more free camping. You have to schedule either you go to this site or you go to the next. Uh, mm-hmm. And then further north, there's even fewer of those. And you have to spend a lot of nights at a, mostly just state parks. But if you want, there's also, you know, seasonal campgrounds and, and the such that people stay at. I, I stayed at one of them. Right. Um, so it's really a factor of do you want to do, you know, a slightly small day or a, or a very large day? And there's, there's very little in the way of businesses, so you're almost definitely going to want to be leaving, you know, your food and, and fuel and such in certain spots along the way. Okay, um, so you would go through and you would cash before you started. Yeah, it's, it's almost required. And I, just because I was taking longer, I did actually leave one bear canister. But for the most part, you're leaving them at state parks, at campgrounds, or at bed and breakfasts. Right, right. Um, there's a really good community of these folks. I mentioned, you know... Nancy and Stark, the Applebrook B&B as well. The, the Applebrook can't even, you know, well, especially now, but even before, couldn't even take you in to stay, but they were incredibly happy to take packages and, and loved meeting right. the hikers as they went by. That's cool. Very different from the AT or something like that. So there's, Absolutely. yeah, it, it sounds like it's it's more uh, integrated with the communities it passes through in a sense, or the businesses it passes by. Very much. In order to make the logistics work. That's interesting. And cultural or historical factors to discuss? Yeah. You know, two parts of that, the, the second one, which ties in a lot of what we said. In the White Mountain section, there's this great logging history. Uh-huh. So a lot of the you know, sites that are there, both the established on-map sites and the, the wilderness campsites that aren't on maps but have these little signs that, if, you, if you're paying attention, you can see most of these are old logging camps and most of the trails are old, you know, either railroad grade from the logging or, or skitter roads. Right. Uh, and, you know, they only stopped logging 72 years ago in the whites. So there's, 
there's still a lot there uh, and some, some pretty neat artifacts, frankly. Other than that, though, you know, once you get out of the white, I met a lot more non-hikers than hikers on the trail. Uh, and that's both just whoever happens to show up at the state park campground. There was a, a, an amusing incident where an SUV passed me multiple times because they, they got sent on ORV roads by their GPS and then ended up being <laughs> in the site next to mine uh, for a wedding. Then just all the, the ORA, OHRV people, I had great conversations with them along the sections where we shared trail. And the seasonal campers, specifically Rudy's Campground in Colebrook and Mary, is, is just so welcoming. And, you know, I, I heard beforehand that I had to say hi to Mary, but she found me first and just really rolled out the welcome mat. And, you know, it gives you all these different parts of the culture. OHRV, for example, I, you know, not only are they different people from the seasonal campers, but it's a mix of the locals and people from afar. Um, I don't, uh, just to clarify, I should say, I don't know how widespread the term seasonal camping is, but that usually means people who go and camp for the whole summer, the whole season. Right. They'll even often have, have newspapers delivered. And, you know, at Rudy's, as in many places, people have permanent structures built around their right. RVs. Where right. They, stay. they really have an investment in that area. Right. So the Coast Trail is different in that, you know, you have those sections in the National Forest where you have, it's very hiking-centric and you have a lot of, you know, the hikers and backpackers there. But further north, you know, you have more of the Orichaviers and there's more land that you go through that's been logged, sometimes a ways back, but sometimes very recently it goes to private land and a whole bunch of different uh, types of land. For mm -hmm. me, that felt perfectly at home, though, because... You know, there's the, the hiking trails that were already some of my favorite places, uh, although there were places on the Colostro in the National Forest I'd never been. But then where, you know, my folks live is heavy logging, heavy OHRV use type of area that that is much more like the Colostro in the north. And it really, we're trying to get the trail as much as possible off of those OHRV roads. Right. And I understand why for many reasons. Uh, it is a better experience, but I, I really liked having that mishmash. Uh, and, and places that were logged a few years ago are the best places for raspberries, so there's right. that. Right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's how raspberries grow, <laughs> disrupted soil, right? So it, it seems to me like you're saying a lot of these, a lot of the places where the trail is are snowmobile trails in the winter, and then they're sort of co-used as trail in the summer, hiking trail? Well, I, I might be overstating it. It's, it's far less than half. Okay. Um, but it, what sta it's what it stands out from other eastern trails uh, okay. to most people. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, to be frank, you know, the, the National Forest was logged to destruction just 72 years ago. It's just had that time to recover protected so people right. don't think of it that much uh, as it right. used to be. And, and you are allowed to use RHV vehicles in some places in the National Forest. It just has much more than the 22 years of Coas trail history. Not right. that there weren't trails already in most of the places. So there are already hiking trail alternatives to all the RHV roads uh, within, within the National Forest. I'll say the, the fact that there's a lot of snowmobile trails makes trail work a lot easier. You know, we Right. We recently did a trail work day, and we're having another in a week. Where the last thing, last time most of us uh, were 
were in the mountains for a while. And the last time I was in New Hampshire uh, before lockdown was was trans, you know, cutting up and transporting a bunch of lumber for bog bridges to different places that, you know, we would have had to carry miles uh, in in the summer. Right. Yeah. No. The, yes. And um, and also, of course, the snowmobile clubs or or whatever that are maintaining are are going to be interested in in keeping the path the the path clear as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's actually one big reason why my folks love the. Uh, the snowmobile trail going through their property. It's they maintain that trail for my folks instead of them having to. Right. It's a very symbiotic relationship, you know. Exactly. With a lot of these, and you know, it's it's much more what you get in far northern Maine as well, where there isn't that separation between hiking trails and orchard roads. Right. Right. No, that's a significant point. So the Kohas Trail for someone who, for instance was a European or, or an Asian thinking of uh, doing one of the long trails in the U.S., uh, it sounds like that would be an interesting way of getting into it or, or testing the waters is to, with something like this where the infrastructure is kind of a, a closed loop, it sounds like, uh, somewhat, and so the support is clear, and yet you're also out on your own at times. Does that make sense? It, it would be an interesting way for someone to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the support is clear, but but changing as the trail is. Right. Uh, okay. You know, businesses come and go, and and for example, this year in specific, some of the state parks are closed, so right. You know, there's a lot of quest discussion going on about the best ways to get around that legally. With the pandemic this year, I understand that all of the trail shelters on the trail have been closed. The ones that are run by Cahostra. Oh, we've reopened them just recently. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, we 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 needed to go ahead from the state of New Hampshire, which is the right. state of New Hampshire is usually a bit more restrictive about open spaces than the national forest, and so it, uh-huh. it just took a bit longer. But the they're all open. It's just the state park campgrounds aren't all open. Okay. Good to uh, know. But all the back country is good to go. Right. So in any case, uh, you know that does underline the fact that one does want to check the sources and make sure that everything is open ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I should plug that then. Um, the Coas Trail Facebook group, for better or worse, is, is the best source for information. It's, right. We do send out email newsletters, but for specific questions, it's a very active group. Right. So um, you've been hiking for a long time. What is your base weight like on your uh, pack? So I actually, you know, don't bother weighing my pack as a general yep. rule. I actually weighed my food for Coas Trail for the first time in a long time and came in between two and two and a quarter pounds a day. I just did a really, really difficult hike where I really pared my stuff down and it's the heat of summer. And for two nights, I had 31 pounds complete with food and water and everything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's work to take out all of like the hand sanitizer and toilet paper and food and fuel and weigh just that. So I I haven't bothered. I was, I was probably around 40 with food at resupply for co-ops. Right. right. So in the 20 to 30 range. And I'm, um, I'm decently on. light. Uh, you know, I hammock, but I still use the hammock I got in 2003 for the Appalachian Trail. Really? Many people have gone to hammocks for the AT, as I understand. Uh, it, it's great to not have to good, have a good campsite. I Right. A few weeks ago, a buddy and I, due to the crowding at the moment, ended up camping on a good 40 or 45 degree angle. 
almost lost a fuel canister a couple times, but it was comfortable to sleep in. Right. All you need is a couple of good trees. Yeah. And there are plenty. <laughs> so you were well equipped for that trail in terms of what you were carrying. I was well equipped, but I'm always shifting things. So oh, I right. I definitely experimented as well, mostly with my tarp configuration. Yep. What which piece of equipment that you took are you most happy that you had with you? I thought hard about this one. I, I have to say I was gonna say something like my hammock or tarp or or a new stove that I had, but I I had uh, gotten to making my own gear, and I made this silly little pouch that I can hang from my hammock center line that you know has some Velcro to attach it and a tilted uh, zipper and a little extra bit at the bottom so things don't fall out so I can actually get at my stuff when I'm in the hammock. So my, my hammock hammer, hanger, it was only its second trip, and it, it made everything so much more pleasant. But as far as commodity things, the hammock and and my Etowah tarp. Yep. Making your own gear is much more satisfying than most people would imagine. I made, uh, I made my own Rayway uh, sleeping quilt years ago and, and uh, still use it. And it, it's a very rewarding thing to have. Yeah. There, there have been some good study, studies that show the more work you put into something, the, the more you appreciate it. And right. Being able to get you know, it's not going to be perfect like a professional, but being able to get exactly the type of thing you want is, is well worth it. That's right. What would you leave behind? And if, I mean, of, of what you took, was there anything that wasn't worthwhile to be carrying? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. I, I, didn't, I didn't actually send anything back, uh, you know, except for shuffling. You know, I didn't always take all the food that I had left at a resupply. Yeah, I'm always fiddling though, you know. Since then I've I've stopped using a lot of things like sunglasses and bug repellent and, and things like that. But yeah, I hate to say I've, I I I go out more weeks than not, so I'm I had most of the fiddling done before then. Uh-huh. Um, I'm making uh, more changes in winter. <laughs> say it again. You may... I'm making a lot more changes in the winter. Right. Did you camp? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, camp. I camped whenever I could. Okay. Uh, so I, you know, I I would stay in every shelter that was there because all the shelters are amazing. But yeah, even when I was staying at a state park campground or a or a seasonal campground that had indoor facilities, I camped. The one exception to that was the one zero day at the Stark Inn. Right. What What was your mix, shall I say? So what was yeah. your mix um, between? camping and staying in shelters and staying in uh, B&Bs and that sort of thing. Yeah. So along with the changing nature of the trail, it really depended on what section I was in. That northern Connecticut River, Connecticut Lakes thing, I stayed in one shelter and three state parks. In the Dixville Notch, Nastream State Forest section, I stayed in four shelters. In the White Mountain section, I, I free camped, you know, the, the recommended distance off trail every night, but, but, one, uh, but two where I, I stayed at the Dry River Shelter twice and slack packed the High Peaks option the day in between. Like I right. said, I wanted to thrill hike the trail, so I did both the normal route and the High Peaks option that they put in when uh, Hurricane Irene really wiped out some sections for a while in, 11, in 2011. Well, which is part of the reason you took 20 days. I mean, you... you... Uh, and I should say, you know, you're, you're, you you say modestly that you took 20 days, but then 
you hiked all this you hiked all the side trails so you did more than than just through hiking the trail as well definitely not all the side trails that was the original goal but but yeah there there are definitely a few i didn't do um okay yeah sugarloaf i came back for later mass stream sugarloaf we've got a few sugarloafs in new hampshire right what were the what was there was there any place in particular that you stayed that stands out in your mind or what what were the most interesting places you stayed yeah well besides the general all the uh all the cholesterol shelters were amazing as far as other than that rudy's campground uh that i mentioned before with the welcoming party of mary that was just great it's also placed perfectly on the longest you know right in the middle of the longest remaining road walk which is mostly orhv orhv roads other than that, and, and this is a love of mine that long predates this, uh, the, the Dry River Shelter is just a wonderful shelter. And I will say part of the reason I love it so much is that it's so hard to get into. The Coas Trail takes a slightly easier route by taking a longer route, but it's rare to be that close to so many good things and have the shelter to yourself. Right. What does OHRV stand for? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, off-road uh, vehicle, off-highway vehicle, off-road right. vehicle, off-highway vehicle. Um, it's the catch-all that, <laughs> yeah, um, off, off-road or off-highway vehicle. Of, so a dirt road, essentially. Um, a dirt road, but, you know, not one you even want to bring necessarily your Jeep on. Some of them are snowmobile only. Some of them right. are four-wheeler only. A few of them are Jeep only. Uh-huh. Um, when I was going through, when most people will go through, you'll get the four-wheelers. How did you learn about this trail? Yeah, that, that was good. So originally I learned about it when I was planning for the Appalachian Trail in the 90s. You know, I was like, okay, but what do I do after the Appalachian Trail? And I, I knew I wanted to do the Appalachian Trail again when I retired, but in between. And, you know, there's still not a complete connection, and, but, but people have done it there started to be this network of north-south trails with the Coast Trail in the very north, the Monadnock, Sunapee Greenway in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, going down all through Mass and Connecticut. And I, I was thinking that would be a really good thing to, to patch together. And that's not so much of a goal now just because there's so many other things on the list, but people have done that. Um, and then I, you know, and I, I heard about it when it was founded 22 years ago from a news article. Mm-hmm. Uh, it then kind of fell off my radar a bit. Uh, until I finally cracked and started getting on social media for, for hiking. And right. uh, they, they had a 20-year uh, slideshow event, and I went to that, and that's what got me into trail working with them and, and, and hiking it. And, uh, you know, just the sort of things in life, you know, like the, the surgery, needing a big hike after that for all the time that I had missed, and, it was just the right time to do it. And when I saw the trail work day come up uh, six days after my surgeon appointment, <laughs> my surgeon follow-up, I, it was just the right time. Mm-hmm. Where can others learn about the trail now uh, in terms of uh, figuring out the logistics and, and learning more about it and that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, if I can expand that to you know, general, you know, figuring out how to do the trail, the, you know, there's coastrail.org, and we have a newsletter. But for more specific information, like I said before, the Coast Trail Facebook group is a really active, good group. It's really good about answering those very specific questions that right. 
you really only know if you've been to these spots or live near there. Besides that, there's three printed resources that are really good. The data book, you know, to anybody long hiking, the data book is, I would say, essential. Right. Um, and that's just, you know, the listing of water sources and road crossings and sites you can spend the night at. There's the map, which we just released a new version. So the map is, is both in plastic form and we now have it on Aveja maps uh, mm-hmm. if you want to use your phone or computer. And then I personally wouldn't recommend it for a long distance hiker because it's big, but definitely for shorter hikes or researching beforehand, the guide is really a step-by-step description of what the trail is like and the history of the area. And are those all available from, was it org? Correct. Okay. And possibly from online booksellers as well. Yeah. Uh, oof, yes, oh. I think we do. We are on Amazon. I'm 99% yeah. sure we're on Amazon. Also a bunch of local booksellers. Uh, right. Mountain Wanderer, thank you. <laughs> yep. No, I mean, obviously buying from org is going to do more to support the to support the trail and create a connection with them ahead of time so and we, we uh, will have more talks in the future we had to cancel at least one we will have more talks and that's also a great way to okay. get face-to-face uh information uh-huh. right uh, but those are a few and far between right right safety security health concerns that that haven't come up so far things to to be aware of before one goes or to take any sort of precaution or educate yourself against? Yeah. Well, you know, just hitting on a, briefly on a few earlier points, the fact that you're, you're not allowed to camp anywhere does mean you have to, you know, pay a little bit more attention to logistics further north. And it really is remote and tougher to follow than, than most long trails. It's, it's definitely not tougher to follow than most trails in the Northeast. But, you know, long trails are, are routed through areas that are, you know, more well-traveled and, and they get more trail work. Other than that, and this is, this is new in our new maps, for the off-road vehicle users, there are these E911 locations where you'll just pass by a random sign that has a mini-map and an E911 number where if an emergency happens, you, you can use that number in lieu of an address in the backcountry. Right. So there is that. So then search and rescue can get to you is the point. Exactly. Right. Um, there isn't much cell reception, but you know, it's, it's relatively on par with the AT in the Northeast in, in Maine, at least for reception. Right. Wildlife, snakes, ticks, all of this are as, as other new England trails are. So I, I'll just comment. I mean, anyone considering any sort of extensive hiking in the, in the eastern United States has to be uh, aware of Lyme disease and take prevention, preventative uh, measures against the ticks that cause it. Yeah, I should say that the highlights for wildlife, you know, the further north you go, the more moose you get. You know, it even goes through a neighborhood called Moose Alley. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, it goes far enough north that you really get the loons. And I, right. I heard loons almost every night further north on the trail. If I could interject from before on safety concerns, uh-huh. uh, there are portions of the trail where you're allowed to hunt. So, you know, during hunting seasons, it is recommended to wear some blaze orange. And, you know, one of the places the trail goes through actually in the White Mountain section is the Pondicherry Wildlife Refuge, which is a, a popular bird hunting spot. But, you know, that's a, that's a mild concern. But it's significant. When when one is preparing for the hike, one should uh, look at the seasons and and 
be sure that you're prepared to go through a hunting area and understand that that is what's happening. So especially October through early December. Right. That's what is happening. Thank you. Yeah. So in terms of getting there, this is, if my impression is correct, a, a place that is not well served by public transportation. So one is going to be driving, renting a car or something along those lines. Is that correct? Yes. But there is also a very healthy shuttle ecosystem. Right. Um, and because it's so close to the trail, that includes the Appalachian Trail shuttle ecosystem. Because it's you know so close to the White Mountains, there's the White Mountain, you know, I'll say weekender ecosystem, although that's shortchanging it. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's also a good ecosystem of of Coas Trail specific groups that will shuttle or, as I mentioned before, hold mail drops. Right. Uh, you can leave a car at the southern terminus. I left my car there for for actually over the three weeks, but there is absolutely no overnight parking at the northern terminus, as that is the border station. Right. For people who are not familiar with the term shuttle in the context of long trails, could you describe that? Yeah. I'm basically, there are people in the term of most long trails uh, in the sense of most long trails, it's usually the hostel owners who run them, but just people who make an extra living by driving hikers to and from different trailheads. Uh, mm-hmm. In many long trails, that'll mean, you know, from the trailhead to the hostel or the restaurant or the grocery store. But for the cost trail, that can also mean to get to the start. Right, right. So how would the expenses... Uh, obviously, it sounds like one can do this in different ways. One can use bed and breakfasts and such more, or one can use them less. And the transportation options would, would have a lot of effect on this. But what would the variables be in the cost for uh, undertaking this trail? And, and what would the costs, uh, what, what sort of costs are one looking at? Yeah. Well, so you, I'll start with what you just hit on, which is probably the biggest source of variability, uh, which is how many nights you want to spend indoors. And so it, it is easy to spend every night outdoors uh, on the Coas Trail, but there are also quite a few good bed and breakfasts along the way. Stark is one place, Young's Corner, way up in the north, Happy Corner, sorry, Happy Corner, way up in the north is another place. And then Jefferson is an especially big place for bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. You are going to be spending money on the state park campgrounds further north. There's there's no way to, without somehow shoving a car multiple times, to do it without staying in at least a few. But but once you get into Dixville Notch, you can very easily avoid that. As we said just a second ago, any shuttle costs to get to the start or get back to your car afterwards. But otherwise, it's food and fuel. There aren't that many businesses there. Um, you know, there's one store way up north, Young's store in Happy Corner. There's one outfitter and one restaurant in the south. And there's a few towns you can get shuttles to, but mostly it's, you know, preparing your food ahead of time and, and stashing it with a state park, B&B, or in a bear canister, or the rare grocery stock. How much do the state park campsites tend to cost? Ooh, I should have looked that up beforehand, but it's wow. ten to twenty bucks. Okay, that's that's what I was guessing, but just significant for people to understand that it's not yeah. very expensive. <laughs> and that's regular for camping all along the way. I, I should also mention the middle ground of a lot of campgrounds also also, add in, uh, also offer cabins. Okay, 
And uh, do you know how much the cabins tend to cost? Maybe 50 or 60 or something? Those range, yeah, that, that was going to be my guess. Those range more, but yeah, 50 or 60. Some of the state parks have cabins too. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that that's a nice alternative for a lot of people. And then shuttle the shuttles, obviously that would vary a lot according to the distance, but how much do the shuttles tend to cost? Oof. That greatly depends on time of day uh-huh. uh, or, you know, time of week and whatnot. You know, it's, it's kind of like a pre-Uber surge pricing usually. Right. I mean, maybe a good ballpark and don't, nobody right. quote me on this. It's a hundred bucks an hour. Right. Um, yep. But that's also an hour of driving for you is twice that for them. But, you know, it's, you can also join in very often with other shuttles and, and whatnot. What I, I did that as well. You know, basically chatting with people ahead of time and scheduling with them makes it easier. I should give, again, two quick shout-outs to, to Nancy at Stark and Mara Antoinette, uh, Mara at your service, for being so good to the trail and for shuttling. Right. But that's a that's a significant portion of the overall cost. So actually, that's an important thing yeah. to understand and and uh, coordinate ahead of time. And as you were saying, uh, if one can split it with other hikers, then that that reduces the cost significantly, right? I I have to admit, I was I was lucky to be in the area and be able to hit up hit up friends for it. Yep, yep. So what are your favorite information sources in general for finding hikes or following the, the hiking scene where you are or or over a broader area? Yeah. Well, not what you're asking, but my best source of information are the people you meet when you're way out there. Just they tend to also like the similar type of places that I do. You know, go figure. As far as media, my favorite podcast of all time was Sounds of the Trail. They unfortunately lasted two and a half seasons. I really like the Trek podcasts and their Backpacker mm-hmm. Radio specifically yep. is the closest thing to, sorry, yeah, the, sorry, I meant the Trail Correspondence is right. the closest thing to Sounds of the Trail that's, that's currently out and, and Backpacker right. Radio is a good source for info. Yep. Mighty Blue is, is probably the second biggest, uh, most frequent podcast I, I listen to and you know, shout out to him for forming the Hiker Radio Network and making it easier for other podcasts. Most of it, okay, well, I, so I also listen to the New Hampshire Public Radio Exchange, which is a, uh-huh. a daily morning program that, because it's New Hampshire, covers the outdoors quite frequently. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, just local papers. In large part, I get it from vlogs, though, from watching these these people who somehow take the time out of their hikes to video them and put them out daily. And, and humongous thank you for Remdino roaming the trails for kind of keeping track of these people and, and, and keeping a spreadsheet of the different people who feel comfortable publishing their channels so that, so that we can follow them. Right. It's really the only way to keep track of the bleeding edge of gear and techniques and, and trail conditions. Yep. yep. So, yeah, no, your, your first point about, your best source of inspiration being other people you meet way out on the trail is, is actually, uh, I think similar to the responses I've gotten from former guests on the, on the podcast to that question. That's one of the best sources you get out there and the people you meet will tell you about more places to go. So that's uh, very relevant. I think. (laughs) 
So um, that, that sharing is one of the best parts. You know, most most people say the best part of a long hike are the people, and even yeah. in such an unpopulated uh, trail as the Coast Trail, that that was definitely true. That's good to hear. So, of the trails that you have completed, what which is your favorite? Yeah. So, let me preface this by I, I've actually grown to to kind of dislike you know lists and notching things off at, mm-hmm. at a specific level. So it's it's not, I don't really think of trails as yep. much as regions. Right. Uh, and the Coloss Trail, you know, was a rare counterexample to that. You know, for long trails, you know, the Appalachian Trail and Coloss Trail. Uh, but the real answer is, you know, a few certain regions. Number one, the Pemigewasset Wilderness. It, it doesn't get bigger than the Pemi. It's the biggest wilderness in the Northeast. And it just has so many good trails, so much good bushwhacking and, you know, swimming both, you know, high above tree line, ridge walks and, and waterfalls that, you know, a few people have seen that you can swim at the bottom of, sometimes slide down. Other than that, the Mahoosics are likewise even more wild and have just so many nooks and crannies, definitely more difficult than the Pemi. And third and last, the Dry River Wilderness. The Presidential Range Dry River Wilderness is its full name, but right. it's it's a wonderfully wild place. The the Coast Trail starts there and spends a good maybe a fifth of a little less than a fifth of the Coast Trail is in the Dry River Wilderness, and it's just a wonderful place with so many little hidey holes to discover. Mm-hmm. How do you spell Pemigewasset? P E M I G-E-W-A-S-S-E-T. Okay. Uh, Google will correct you, though. Okay. And Mahusik? <laughs> Mahusik is the same Mahusik as Mahusik Notch on the Appalachian Trail. M-A-H-O-O-S-U-C. Okay, good. Yeah, because these are old Native American names, I would guess. And with, challenging with sounds from... that we can't say with Western language. Right. Right, exactly. So challenging for an outsider to, you know, a person new to the area to, to figure out where they are. So um, if they can look them up, then they can figure that out. What trail do you dream of doing? Yeah, this is, this is a boring answer, but because of the people, uh, the Appalachian Trail still. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think I mentioned I had already planned to do it when I retire, but now I'm, I'm thinking I should do it when I'm 20. I first started when I was 22, thinking I should do it again at 44 and then 66 when I retire. Um, and again, that's not specifically because of the places that the Appalachian Trail has, even though they're some of my favorite places, but because of that melting pot of all these different people from so many different cultures and backgrounds. You know, so many, so many people, their first night in the woods is on the Appalachian Trail. And so their perspective is so completely different from, you know, the people I tend to meet in the backcountry, you know, deep in the backcountry. And you have a complete spectrum of political and societal views in a way you don't get in, in any of the other long trails. Uh-huh. To at least to the same degree. Uh, yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting it, perspective. And, on it. You know, the, the woods can keep me out there for a few months at a time happily. But after maybe three months, you need to have enough people to to keep the social aspect going. Right. <laughs> At least for me. Huh. Okay. 
No, that makes sense. So, I should say, having a hammock, yep. it makes it especially easy for me to just completely get away from people. And, you know, it's it's very easy for me to just hike 250 feet off trail and nobody would know I was there. So it's, right. it's different as compared to a tent where you're not likely to find a spot in some random spot. But yeah. No, that actually is, that I think is a huge comment on on hammocking and on how to experience many of these places and trails that your choice of, of a hammock adds a different dimension, right? It is, it is definitely a wonderful freedom. Do you have uh, a social media presence that uh, people would want to know about? I don't have much of a social media presence and I have, I, you know, I have a Facebook, but I've got such a backlog uh, going back five or 10 years of photos that I want to post. Uh, there really, really isn't much to it. I suppose if people actually want to reach out to me, an email is whispers at faceofmelinda, M-E-L-I-N-D-A dot com. Uh-huh. Or my Instagram is hypogymnia, P-H-Y-P-O-G-Y-M-N-I-A-P. Uh-huh. Uh, the beginning of the Latin name of my favorite, like in hypogymnia facilities. But I... Yeah, as I kind of alluded to with the vloggers before, uh, it's a lot of work to keep a social media presence, and it takes away from my time outdoors. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. really appreciate your coming on and and sharing your knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Trails Around the World podcast please visit us online at trailsaroundtheworld.com and please join our Facebook group under the same name. If you liked this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcast source, such as Apple Podcasts. This is Sky King, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, happy trails to you, and please remember to leave no trace as you enjoy the outdoors.